<laughs> Hello, and welcome to French Life with a Y. Because there's nothing like feeling good, right? Something like that. Here we are. Meetober, week five. This is it. It's over. We did it. 30 days. Carnivore diet. It's over. I'm here. I'm alive. I'm not dead. Don't have atherosclerosis. I'm not sick. Everything went fine. We are now transitioning from No Rest November. Sorry. We are now transitioning from Meetober into No Rest November. I'll keep you updated on that too, but it won't be every week because it's a lot doing a podcast every week. So we got a good show today. So we're going to do uh, three sections. Uh, we're going to talk about Meetober. We're going to give you some updates. Uh, and then we're going to talk about the transition into No Rest November. We will do a book. We'll do Mindful Moments, book breakdown again, and then we'll do a food rule. So pretty typical. Typical, typical, typical. Maybe I'll break the two up, but we'll see. We'll start off right here. Meat-tober week five updates. We're going to put the meals on the side of the screen right there. Whoa-pow! And let's, uh, let's, let's do the thing. Let's make sure we're in the beginning. So this is actually less than a week, but here we go. Boom. Last Tuesday, 1027, 1230 p.m., 16.5 hours fasting. That is my meal. Gorgeous New York strip steak, some beef, some eggs, some beef bacon. The side dish there is for the child I look after on Tuesdays, who I am also feeding well. You're welcome. Here's a close-up of that meal. Look at that. Anyone that questions this diet, look at that. I'm sorry if you're listening to us in the podcast realm and not on YouTube or IGTV. Look at that. Dude, awesome. Moving along. Later that day, 1027, 5.30. Uh, looks like I had... Oh, it looks like I didn't finish the steak in the morning. Finished it later, and that was a hunk of meatloaf that was mixed with the organ meats. Um, then that night... Uh, we eat some more of that pulled beef, uh, chuck roast, some eggs, a little bit of butter on there, some of that Irish grass-fed butter. Moving along, 1028, following morning, 1 p.m., it's afternoon, 15 three-quarters hours fasting, New York strip steak, some Swiss cheese, uh, Jarlsberg actually, bacon, some eggs. Looks great, moving along. Um, did I miss a dinner? 28. I must have missed something there. Whatever, 1028. 16 hours fasting in the morning there. Bacon, meatloaf, egg, typical. Uh, 10.28 later in the day, we have a tuna steak and a New York strip steak. Awesome. The tuna. Never had tuna before. It's awesome. Really great. You, like, barely cook it. Super bizarre. Uh, later that day, 4.45, 10.29. What is going on here? These pictures are all out of order. Well, it doesn't matter. Some eggs, some pulled pork. Uh, 1029 here. Look at these rack of lamb. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight little ram rib things there. Look at this close-up picture. What? So good. That rack of lamb, unbelievably good. So tender. So delicious. You could taste the innocence. <laughs> Highly recommend it. Um, 1030, 10 p.m., uh, some eggs, London broil. Why are these? Why am I just jumping to 10.30 at night? Uh, or 10.30 in the morning. Whatever, they're out of order. It doesn't matter. It's the last week. You don't care. Uh, four eggs, meatloaf, bacon, typical 17 hours fasting. 10.30, 6 p.m., 
salmon, meatloaf, a little bit of bacon, some eggs. Great. Uh, 10.31, that would be the last day of Meat-tober. Eggs, pulled pork, bacon, same thing, basically all week. Uh, and then there it is, happy Meat-tober. 10.31, 7 p.m., uh, another tuna steak and a London Royal. Happy Meat-tober. Isn't that just great? We did it. What a roller coaster it's been, guys. Let me then elaborate a little bit on the future of Meatober or the carnivore diet. I loved it. It was great. I feel great. I wouldn't give it back. I'm absolutely changing my diet. My breakfast is will, my wrench fist, which I've called my breakfast, will no longer be what it was with the sweet potato, carrot, Brussels sprouts, and everything. The bloated, full stomach, post-meal lethargy is gone when you're eating carnivore. It's awesome. It feels incredible. I'm not going back. I may still put some Brussels sprouts in here and there. I really, really enjoy Brussels sprouts, but we're going to experiment. Furthermore, we are transitioning into another month, no rest November, and that has implications too. But I'll talk about that briefly. Just to finish up the last little points here uh, from No Rest November. I'm sorry, from <laughs> Meatsober. Um, I'll tell you a couple of interesting things that happened. Um, in anticipation for being able to break edge and start eating carbohydrates and everything, and as well as the sober October... I went to the beer store all excited. I get to drink beer again. I love beer. I went there, walked up and down the beer aisle twice. Nothing jumped out at me. And I left the beer aisle without beer. I, I've been dying for a beer. And then, like, I don't know what the cognitive shift is where it maybe it just feels like that much more of a, a special thing now, a special treat for me. And nothing, nothing like, just seems special enough. Super bizarre. I did end up getting a six-pack later. But you'd think after that much time, I'd be so excited. Weird. Now, here's the really weird thing that happened. In the past, I never had an issue with wheat. When I switched to a paleo template, after really cutting back all my carbs, I started to have weird adverse reactions to wheat. Uh, I guess this would fall under non-celiac gluten insensitivity. Typically, it would happen with wheat beers. I don't particularly like the taste of wheat beers, so I never drank them much. But occasionally, from time to time, over the last couple of years, I would have a wheat beer. I would almost instantly have crazy stomach pressure, bloating, and cramps. I once, this is probably two years ago, uh, maybe being a little too dependent on alcohol, it was all there was, so I just drank this wheat beer, and I felt so ill. Now, that is with a beer that was completely a wheat beer. You know, it could be a hops, barley, wheat, whatever. So, hold on, drop my pen. I happen to know two things. One, in reading... The Paleo Cure, Chris Kresser's book, uh, that when you eliminate food that you are insensitive to, you become more sensitive to it. His 30-day reset has a 30-day paleo 
diet that you follow a protocol. Then it has an introduction into various foods people have intolerances with. And when you give yourself a break from those intolerances, you become sensitive and it becomes pretty easy to isolate those food food insensitivities. Now, I had a hazy, unfiltered IPA on Saturday night, November 1st, or Sunday night. Now, I know that for some beers to get that hazy, unfiltered look, they put wheat in it. Now, there are weeded IPAs, uh, and then there are hazy ones. So the degree of how much wheat they put in, I don't know. Beer is not regulated by the F. DA, so they don't have to have ingredients on it. It's the tobacco and alcohol, tobacco, TSA, tobacco, TA, tobacco, alcohol, firearms, TAF, whatever. So I drank this very hazy beer, tasted a touch, touch weedy. I'm not kidding. I made it this far into my pint glass. I made it like one fifth into my pint glass and I instantly had stomach bloat, instantly had pressure. I didn't get to the point of cramps, but I very noticeably had a reaction to that beer. Uh, Now, it wasn't the beer itself because I had previously had a porter, a dark malty beer, more on the barley side of things. Didn't have an issue. This IPA, which had wheat in it, it tasted a little bit like wheat. Absolutely happened. So is it possible that on a carnivore diet for a month with zero carbohydrates, zero wheat, zero flour, my sensitivity to wheat has gone up? seems to be the case. I ate a pork, rog, and cheese sandwich on a bun. The bun is obviously made of bread. I did not have any adverse reaction to that bun. Uh, Additionally, something happened to me uh, about 24 hours after reintroducing beer and a tiny bit of carbohydrates into my diet. Something that I didn't realize really, something I didn't realize hadn't happened all month. I had to poop. Now, obviously, I've had to go to the bathroom a couple times, but not like a, oh, man, it's time. Now, before going on the carnivore diet, that happened most of the time, almost every day. When it was time to go, it'd be like, oh, man, like I, I got to go. That did not happen at all during the carnivore diet. Eating one bun and a couple beers, and I had some beef jerky that had some sugar in it, but instantly. And um, I went... It was kind of normal, larger, sorry. But then I didn't really feel like it was quite everything, not to be too graphic. And then about 10 minutes after it, it hit me. So there was something happened internally in the intestines. Something in there was like, holy crap, send it out. And I'm guessing the first movement was just like that chain of command (laughs) going and prep for what came afterwards. And what came afterwards um, was an event far more um, dramatic than anything that had occurred during my transition into the carnivore diet or during the carnivore diet. Every um, incident, bathroom incident during carnivore was uh, brief, small, simple, almost unfulfillingly small. And then 24 hours after breaking it, it was like, what the hell just happened? So that's really bizarre. Uh, It's not like I had a huge intake of fiber. I don't know if it was the carbohydrates. I don't know if it was a system shock. But that was definitely worth noting. 
and I'll continue to uh, log things so I can let you guys know in subsequent podcasts. So let me just check my notes here. Um, the beer incident, yep. Not really changing my diet. That weird poop feeling. Got it. Okay. So we're going to move into a mindful moment here. Then we will do, we'll talk about No Rest November. And then we'll do a food roll and get out of here. So cue the music. Forgot my laptop. Pretend you're hearing the music. I'll edit it later. So I'll know I'm saying that. Um, so. Okay. Mindful moments. Mindfulness is the, the act of thinking about stuff, essentially. Taking a break, thinking about what you think, thinking about what you feel, and just being mindful, living in the moment. That is what mindfulness is. Lately, we've been doing this thing where I'm reading uh, or giving you quotes from books I've read for you to think about. So it's not exactly a mindful moment. Perhaps I should name this a new segment. But anyway, in this mindful moment... I'm going to read you a passage from a book I read this week. The book is called The Madness of Crowds. It is by Douglas Murray, who is a uh, British United Kingdom area guy. Uh, he is quite the thinker, quite the intellectual. Uh, he airs on the conservative side, although he's obviously not, not obvious, but he's not that conservative. So I'm going to read you this quote, and then I made some brief notes, and we're going to talk about it. This is the quote. We have spent the first years of this century trying to understand a communication revolution so huge that it may yet make the invention of the printing press look like a footnote in history. We have had to try to learn how to live in a world where at any moment we may be speaking to one other person or millions around the world. The notion of private and public space has been eroded. What we say in one place may be posted in another, not just for the whole world, but for all time. And so we are having to find a way to speak and act online as though we may be speaking and acting in front of everyone, with the knowledge that if we slip up, our errors will be accessible everywhere and always. Made it through that kind of smooth. So. Douglas Murray is a free speech advocate. He is a, a, a British intellectual. He is on the conservative side. He is a brave one of few people who are willing to speak and write about controversial issues that will normally have you canceled. Because cancel culture is real. This quote so perfectly personifies this realm we we are in which begs the question have you virtue signaled today that's the culture we're living in it's it's ridiculous so uh let's talk about this quote a little bit i like how he sets the stage we have spent the first years of the century trying to understand a communications revolution so huge that it may yet make the invention of the printing press look like a footnote in history. I hope you know what the printing press is, but just to make it perfectly clear, a quick Google search. Bigthink.com, 
has the printing press as the eighth most influential invention of all time. Uh, LiveScience.com has it as the fourth most influential invention of all time. InterestingEngineering.com has it as the seventh most influential or impactful uh, invention of all time. And National Geographic has the printing press as the single most important invention of all time. Which makes sense because they're a magazine that have been around for like 110 years or something. So obviously without the printing press, they would have never existed. So they are a little biased to make it the most important one. And these, it consistently ranked just below the compass to give you an idea of how important the printing press is. I've heard many intellectuals talk about how big this revolution we're in right now of information. In fact, the, the medium I'm speaking to now is the first time in the world ever in recorded history where spoken word has become as accessible as written language. It used to be you had language because lang spoken language evolved far before written language, right? Then we got written language, right? Then there was the printing press. Then you could read. So then people had, had access to books, could read, and they could learn more. But that was still limited by access. Sure, you had you know, politicians would go on speaking tours, blah, 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 blah. But until we had the digital revolution, before the, the technology in the bit allowed information to be stored, recorded, uploaded, anyone can access this information. And presumably it could be there forever, like long before you are. Think about that. Scary. Your con your Facebook's there if you're dead. That's uh, something to consider. So, we are in the middle of a revolution. Spoken word has become more powerful than written word, or at least more accessible. Actually, the term found learning time is the term they use. Uh, so if you're listening to a podcast, perhaps you're listening to this podcast, most likely you might be doing something different in the time, different at the same time. Your ability to listen and learn while cleaning the dishes or something is called found learning time. It's really a revolution. Um, it, I, I personally think it really questions um, how important the role of like universities and education really are because it's accessible for everyone. Anyway, so Douglas sets the stage with saying this is how, this is how big this thing is. Rightfully so. Um, he goes on to say, we have had to try to learn to live in a world where at any moment we may be speaking to one person or millions around the world. That's pretty serious. Then he says, he kind of like says it and then points out how drastic it is seconds after the fact. The notion, I think this is really the core of it right here. This is like the line that like made me stop. The notion of private and public space has eroded. That's like really interesting. That's like the core of this for sure. What we say in one place may be posted in another, not just for the whole world, but for all time. So you could kind of say this is the new normal. Maybe it doesn't have to be the new normal. But once upon a time, there was private conversations. Some people still have private conversations. There's still people that exist outside of the internet. But we are moving in a world uh, increasingly towards... We're moving increasingly towards a world where the new normal is what he is trying to say, right? 
this double speak he's speaking of doesn't have to be the way. It, that really depends on how people interpret the world and this polarization issue is what I'm guessing he's leading to. Um, you used to have closed door conversations when you're home with your loved one, with your girlfriend. I mean, you would say stuff. You'd say stuff that you wouldn't say to normal people. There's this big push right now about like how like like young uh, liberal millennials and Gen Zs need to tell their parents they're wrong about politics when, I mean, basic logic would have you know that your parents have lived longer and experienced more than you have. So perhaps they know something you don't know. Perhaps you know something they don't know. Actually, both those things are true. This idea where it's like people go digging through other people's past to find things they said that are, are no longer appropriate. It's like a moral relativism where, like, obviously this is an unacceptable thing to say, even though when they said it in 1990, it was a different environment. And that's not to give everyone, like, immunity for things they said in the past because this isn't like... I'm not saying what... Murray's alluding to here is unrealistic. Obviously, there's certain elements to this which are true, which is like you should be mindful of what you say. Hell, this is a mindful moment. Like the whole point of this is you should be mindful about what you say. You obviously shouldn't say things that are like screwed up. But also, to quote um, Sam Harris, who I don't really listen to a lot of his podcasts, but it's a great quote. He says, "We are only a few conver- We are always only a few conversations away from the complete." collapse the society we need to be able to have conversations you need to not be able to, you need to be able to say what you want ideas need to be thrown into the arena of ideas and need to be battled out when you're afraid about what you say because you might get canceled so then you can't say it you create this environment where people can't think that that was like an or- orwellian thing right like if you don't have the words right you can't have the thoughts. So if you aren't allowed to say the words, it's going to be really hard to think about it. How many people are going to dedicate mental bandwidth to thinking about something that they're never going to utter to another soul? Perhaps this has some overlap to do with the phenomenon of the silent Trump vote. By the time this podcast is out, we'll have a better idea what happened in the election, but today is election day. Last time the polls were wrong. There seemed to be a whole bunch of people that didn't answer polls, didn't I don't even know where they take these polls, but all these people showed up that no one thought would vote. Would that happen again? I don't know. Could. Could not. No idea. Doesn't matter. The phenomenon I'm trying to talk about is the fact that there are conversations we're not allowed to have. And where you see the manifest, perhaps that is a manifestation of the conversation and the things we're not allowed to say. I don't know. The point I'm making is this presses against free speech. Sure, you're allowed to say it, but when the public is sitting there with the guillotine to hang you publicly, when you're afraid of being ostracized or or canceled or fired from your job or the Yelp mob coming after you for making some stance about something people don't agree with, it really inhibits our ability to have meaningful conversations about things that matter. The point that Murray is trying to make here, I think, is, is, is just a really, really deep and insightful idea that we need to take seriously. 
at the core of it, what he's saying is that an ideology is placing fear in between what you're allowed to think and say and how that can manifest in the world. Now, let me ask you a question. If someone or some group or some ideology has developed an environment where the use of fear backed up by power inhibits someone from speaking, how would you define that? You're scared to say certain things. You're scared to have certain conversations. We have the inability to parse things out because of the fear, because you're scared, right? What are you scared of? Well, you're scared of people ostracizing you. You're scared of the mob, the, the madness of crowds, to quote the book. A system in which fear is used to enforce any sort of political public view, that's called terrorism. And similarly, when you're using the force of power to stop people from doing, saying, acting in any ways publicly, politically, that's called fascism. So what you're seeing here, in my estimation, is some sort of subliminal, low-key internet fascism. Of course, you could step away from this by just not being on the internet, by not caring. But if you really want to talk about a lot of these issues, a lot of these social political issues, you have to really be willing to put your ass on the line. I am very careful about how I phrase things, even on this podcast that gets apparently now seven listeners, because I own a business. And it only really takes one angry Facebook mom to start blasting it and then the internet has the mob of people that jump on and all of a sudden you can dig through my facebook you can dig through my twitter feed for, i don't use those things anymore but you could find things i said that were screwed up I maybe mean, i said bush did 9 11 like a thousand times I said all kinds of, i was a kid i was 20s i was like i thought anarchy was cool uh, you know. at the bottom of this issue is we need to be able to speak it's all this Could you imagine thinking that if you slip up, your error could be accessible for all time and everywhere? Oh, look at this. God, this is like last week's episode. David, you have the power to determine the outcome of the election. This is Jen, a volunteer with the Democrats. Have you voted? Why? I don't care. So, Douglas Murray, The Madness of Crowds is a great book started the book Thursday before my ride. I finished it yesterday, on Monday. 12 and a half hour audiobook book. I did it like Thursday to Sunday. Awesome. Douglas Murray, um, normally I don't really care, but in the context of this book, he is a gay man, which I think if you're going to play by the rules of intersectionality, gives him the right to speak about these things a little more so. But his whole point is that you don't necessarily need to. And he does a really good job at pointing out how intersectional thinking and all that critical race theory stuff gets really, really muddy. Um, there are a lot of contradictions. There are a lot of things that don't exactly parse out. 
And that quote personifies how, well, if these things don't parse out and these things contradict and, and we're not allowed to have conversations about it, then why, like, where, how, where are we going? What are we supposed to do? It's strange times. Maybe because it's an election year. I don't know. What I do know is um, that quote, I'll read it one more time before we're done. That quote is is deep. And you need to think about that. You need to think about that understanding. Um, we need to be able to have conversations. We need to be able to talk. We need to be able to throw ideas into an arena. And the best ideas will float to the top. The problem with so much of this, like, really, like, reconstructionist deconstructionist thinking is there are like the whole ideology is it's all baked into the cake that you're not allowed to talk about it you can't have these conversations so like their ideology has all these shortcomings and these things that can't make sense and then anyone else that's like anywhere probably right of this thinking right as in politically right can look at that and be like man some of that stuff doesn't make sense and they're like you're not allowed to talk about it because you're not blah 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 whatever whatever their ideology would be stronger if they allowed themselves to work through some of their thinking. But some of the thinking in this stuff is, is so incoherent. And Douglas Murray does a really, really good job of pointing those things out. Does he offer solutions? Kind of not really. The book's not about solutions. The book is about pointing it out. If you were someone that was you know, very much subscribed to this critical race theory to this postmodernist reconstructionist idea or deconstructionist. I mean, it's a little bit of both. It'd be a great book to read because he really, in my estimation, skillfully points out all these, these, these errors, these, all these chinks in the armor. And if you subscribe to it, his book would point you exactly where you need to smooth out your ideology. But I suspect the problem is if you are of this thinking, you're not allowed to question the thinking which is what the quote's about. So if you're trying to point out this issue of you know whatever is A, B, or C, you're not allowed to, we're not allowed to, and that's what the quote's about. So it's kind of like a, a circular firing squad is the term they'll use. So I don't know. I try not to say anything too specific about it because, like I said, I don't want to get canceled. But whatever. I will read the quote one more time. I will try to do better than I read it the first time. Then we will move on to the next section of the podcast. Again, this is from Douglas Murray's Madness of Crowds. It's on Audible. We have spent the first years of this century trying to understand a communications revolution. Man, that one gets me. We have spent the first years of this century trying to understand a communication revolution so huge that it may yet make the invention of the printing press look like a footnote in history. We have had to try to learn how to live in a world where at any moment we may be speaking to one other person or millions around the world. The notion of private and public space has eroded. What we say in one place may be posted in another, not just for the whole world, but for all time. And so, we are having to find a way to speak and act online as though we may be speaking and acting in front of everyone. 
with the knowledge that if we slip up, our error may be accessible everywhere and always. There is some functional truth to that. You should be mindful of what you say. You should be precise in your speech. That last part of it, good stuff. The middle part is pointing out a major issue that we need to work out. And if you uh, would like to talk to me in person about any one of these issues and you can entertain a rational conversation, I love talking about this stuff, but I will not do it in the podcast. So if you know me, you want to talk about something, hit me up. Let's talk. Let's chat. Let's parse through it. I've read a lot of books about this stuff. Let's go there. And that's it for Mindful Moments today, guys. Thanks for checking it out. Um, next, we're going to talk about No Rest November, and then we'll do a food roll. So, moving on. Since we're done with Meat-tober. No Rest November! That's right. No Rest November. Let's talk about No Rest November. It is No Resting in November. That's what it is. <laughs> My buddy Phil challenged me to this last year. Um, It's kind of like choose your own thing, but kind of also like don't be a bitch. We kind of generally agreed that it would be a 5K a day for a whole month. Uh, Let's talk about that. Last year, I did more than that. Last year, I did 5K a day. I did about one 10K a week. I did a half marathon at the end of the month, a couple bike rides in there. It was rough. I was never a runner. I ran my first 5K last September. I ran my first 10K last October and then went from, you know, a seldom, <laughs> seldomly running to let's just do a 5K a day every single goddamn day. Let me tell you what's so great about No Rest November. One is... The mental challenge, the one, the next is the mental benefit, uh, and the finally is the weather transition, believe it or not. So one, I mean, tell yourself you could do something and stick to it. I mean, to do, I love the rest of November because when I tell people I did it, they're always like, what the hell is wrong with you? Honestly, wasn't that bad. Just ran a 5K every day. I mean, it kind of sucked, but I mean, if you're going slow, 11-minute mile, like, you could kind of limp your way through it. Uh, I spent far more time... Sorry. There were moments I probably sat in my car for 15 minutes, like, oh, my God, contemplating, contemplating, and then went, get around a five... five I mean, if 10-minute miles, pretty slow. It's going to be half hours. So I sit in my car for 15 minutes to run for half an hour. So dumb so dumb <sighs> so i did a 5k a day did all the running it was fine it hurt my quads were super sore my calves were super sore but i did it it's great mentally i felt phenomenal i would say aside from meat tober last november was probably the best i've ever felt mentally just getting out there every day getting the heart rate up getting the blood pumping getting the fresh air every single day Winning that battle every day, it's all about the battle. Win the battle, that mental battle with yourself. In the words of Joe Rogan, conquer your inner bitch. I felt so mentally good that month, although 
very sore. Understandably so. My other favorite part about No Rest November is the weather transition. The fact that you are forcing yourself to get outside every day. November is the big transition month. November comes in, you might still be in the 50s, you might get a 50 degree day. By the end of November, it's winter. So by forcing yourself to get outside every day in the cold, your body will acclimate to the cold in a way that you have not experienced before, I swear to God. I've always been a cold person up until last year. Then I forced myself outside every single day for all of November, and there was a significant change in how my body handled cold. It did not bother me anymore. It was super bizarre. So that's good. Let's talk about you in November. I know by the time you listen to this, we're a week or so into November. Maybe you could extend it, whatever. The idea is pick an attainable goal. It shouldn't be easy, but it should be as mentally demanding as it is physically demanding. And the whole thing is to stick to it. The whole thing is, well, what if it's raining? Oh my God, don't be a baby. What if it's cold? No, the idea is you don't take a break. It's not, well, I'll do double today so I could take tomorrow off. No, it's about sticking to it and doing it. I promise you, if you do it, you will talk about it for the rest of your life. I've been excited for No Rest November for months. I dreaded it all last year, and now that we're doing it again, I like couldn't wait. I'm so excited for it. So you can do whatever you want. I mean, you could even make it like, you know, maybe a, maybe you're not a runner. I mean, I'll aim for, you know, what's a 5K, maybe a 2.5K, which would be, you know, one and a half, 1.7 miles. Do that every day. Whatever it is, just do it. What I'm doing this year, for me, is I'm not going to get cheeky, not going to do more than 5Ks. My goal is to do the 5K a day and to reach 100 miles by the end of the month. So that means I'd have to do 3.3 a day, not 3.1. So I'll mix in a couple 3.5s or whatever, we'll get there. Some days I will do a running round of disc golf. If I play a course twice at a running round, um, it should give me about 11 minute pace. The heart rate numbers will be as significant as running and it will give me probably more than 3.1 miles. I will do that. It's very much about the heart rate zone as much as it's about the activity. Like I could go on a run and barely run and, and not even break a high heart rate. And that's not really not the point. Although I'm sure there'll be days I'll be so sore that I will do that. But it's no rest November. Win the battle. Now, let's talk about this Meetober, no rest November transition. I am continuing to stay mostly on a carnivore diet because I want to limit my carbohydrate intake and I want to stay in and out of ketosis, mo around ketosis. I'm going to limit my alcohol intake, maybe beer on the weekend or whatever. I'm getting drunk tonight, though, election night. Um, <laughs> let me know in the comments who won, who you think is going to win, because by the time this gets out, we'll have an idea. So, yeah, I want to compare my muscle recovery 2020, no rest in November, compared to 2019, no rest in November, uh, relative to my carbohydrate intake and protein. I will note last year that in Norris November, I was like constantly hungry. Like, it, and like just, I was eating, I started eating pretty poorly because I just was so hungry from doing this every single day. Uh, so we'll see. I got a Garmin watch. It's coming in. Normally I'm right now, I'm using my bike computer and my heart rate monitor. And it's kind of annoying 
because it's not made for that. When I get my Garmin watch, I will be tracking all of my heart rate numbers a lot more conveniently. So we can actually track uh, if I any, you know, it'll track my VO2 max, which I won't have any baseline going back. So I'm just getting the watch now, but we will be able to track some of my cardio numbers, some of my heart rate numbers throughout the month and see, see where we get and my muscle recovery. So that's no rest in November. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run a 5k a day every single day the whole month. Actually, and let me show you, I'm already a few days in, so why not give you, we'll throw these up on the screen here, a little bit of what we've already been up to. Let's see, week five folder. Let's put that right there. Boom. Ha! No rest November, 5K, number one. Let's go. That's pretty good. Got up at 7.07 a.m., right out the door, 9.14 pace, 145 beats per minute, 28 minutes. Solid. 145 heart rates. Pretty it's pretty good for 20 minutes. Uh, yesterday, Norris remember, 5K, 5K, number two. Went up to Durand Eastman Park, did a trail run. Uh, 10.28 pace, 3.1. That's a lot slower, but it is trail. Um, look at the elevation, 370 feet over 3.1 miles. So there's some up and down. It's a little bit tough. Uh, during that ride, here's the heart rate number right there. Uh, 147 average, but look at those couple of those spikes. Um, that last spike at the very end, I came up the hill. If you look closely at that graph, uh, shaded behind the red is actually the ev the elevation profile of the run. So you can see where your heart rate heart rate spikes relative to run. So you see in the middle there, there's two hills, and there's no heart rate spike really. Then there's two last hills, and you see two big heart rate spikes. On that last heart rate one, I actually had to stop to a, a, a brisk walking pace because I was like, <gasps> it actually got me. I, I didn't pace myself as well as I could have. And then today, election day, Super Tuesday. Well, it's not Super Tuesday, but might as well. No, it's never. No, number 5K number three, 10.28 pace. So actually the exact same pace as yesterday, but on pavement. Obviously, this is the route from two days ago. I did stop and vote in the middle of this 5K. Doesn't that sound terrible? In the middle of run, you just stop and vote. Um, 396 calories. I don't get it, though. Some of this Garmin stuff doesn't make sense. So how is how is 32 minutes at that high heart rate in the woods, 326 calories? And then this one is 30, less time, way flatter, lower heart rate, but now it's telling me more calories. It, maybe my heart rate numbers were a little bit different. I know it does track recovery time, so maybe that plays into it. I don't know. I know both of these runs, I was in a fasting state. So that probably didn't play into it. So I don't know. Here's the heart rate chart for that run. You see that it drops down in the beginning uh, when I was voting. So I don't know. I'll keep you updated on No Rest November. I'm going to track all my rides, my heart rates and everything. And uh, if you're going to do No Rest November, you should do it. You should do it. Win the battle. Win the battle, my friend. And lastly, today, we're going to finish it with everyone's favorite, Michael Pollan, Food Rule. Michael Pollan, Food Rules, great little book. Little quips, little rules, little guidelines to make you eat a little bit better. Um, yeah, here we are. Rule 13. 
there it is. It's got a little picture on it. Those are like plum tomatoes. Maybe they're eggplant. I'm not really sure. Food rule 13. Eat only foods that will eventually rot. That's a good rule. Sometimes you kids at the skate park, you leave like a like a McDonald's like burger on the chair. It'll be there for a day. Next day, doesn't rot. It's so bizarre. It doesn't mold. I don't know why you would eat that garbage. Anyway, let's read it. <clears throat> what does it mean for food to, quote, go bad? It usually means that the fungi and bacteria and insects and rodents with whom we compete for nutrients and calories have gotten to it before we did. Food processing began as a way to extend the shelf life of food by processing it. Oh my god. Round three. What does it mean for food to go bad? It usually means that the fungi, bacteria, and insects, and rodents with whom we compete for nutrients and calories have gotten to it before we did. Food processing began as a way to extend the shelf life of food by protecting it from these competitors. This is often accomplished by making food less appealing to them, by removing nutrients from it that attract competitors, or by removing other nutrients likely to turn rancid like omega-3 fatty acid. The more processed a food is, the longer the shelf life is, and the less nutrient nutritious it typically is. Real food is alive, and therefore it should eventually die. Although there are a few exceptions to this rule, honey itself, honey has a shelf life measured in centuries. Hmm. Note, most of the immortal food-like substances in supermarkets are found in the middle aisles. Well, that was the previous rule. Think about that. Real food is alive, therefore it should eventually die. There you go. That one was okay. There it is. Wrench Life 21. I think it's 21. That's it. Meat-tober is over. No Rest November is here. Thanks for hanging out. Thanks for checking it out. I'll tell you what. Go out there. Win the battle. Keep on wrenching it, my friends. It's a long way to the top if you want to rock and roll. Thank you.